BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast. And I came up with this idea. I was, I was intrigued by, you know, the legacy of the Soviet Union and this Russian diaspora living in Estonia, what that meant for Russia's, uh, Estonia's identity and security, how Russia might choose to leverage that as they had done in Ukraine to justify an invasion and annexation. Uh, and realised that this was something that was going all along the eastern border of Europe. I'm John Horsfall, an adventure athlete who has pursued numerous expeditions around the world. My hope is that on this podcast, we can look to explore the big topics in the world of travel and adventure. This podcast talks to adventurers and explorers around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders from all walks of life. We listen to the crazy stories from their expeditions and tragic losses and sacrifices they have made. My next guest is a travel writer and storyteller and has some great stories to tell us. He has done an 8,500 kilometer overland trip from the top of Norway down to Romania, exploring former Soviet countries and their neighbors at a time of increased tensions between Russia and the West, as well as joining Leveson Wood on walking the Nile and walking the Himalayas. I am delighted to introduce Ash Bardwaj. Hello, how are you doing, John? Great to have you on the show, Ash. Amazing sort of adventures that you've done over the last couple of years. I've sort of been following your journey since you were doing sort of walking the Nile with Leveson. And so have you always had this love for adventures or was this something quite recent? Yeah, I did, didn't really always have this love. So it started when I look back at it, the critical moment was uh, going to New Zealand uh, when I was in sixth form in my local state school. But if I think back to the things that probably triggered it in the first place, my favourite TV show when I was a kid was Star Trek, which is Star Trek The Next Generation, which is very much about going out and uh, encountering new cultures, new places, and trying to gain an understanding and seeing what we can learn from other other cultures. So I think uh, on a very subtle level, having that as a, as a sort of moral lesson from an early age was probably quite a, quite a good one to have. And, but the big one, surprisingly, probably came through my parents, neither of 
which traveled much. My father migrated from India when he was 16, but then basically stayed mostly in England. Yet he had a fairly gregarious and adventurous spirit in the way he did things. Uh, set up a bunch of different bars, restaurants, um, takeaway, fish and chip takeaways in Windsor. And growing up in that environment meant that I spent a lot of time talking to older people, people from very different backgrounds. He had Nigerian friends. He had, of course, the Indian family um, and people that just came in to the restaurant that I would just sit and chat to from the age of two upwards. Um, now, my mum, when I actually think back on it, this is something I've only really considered recently. She was quite an adventurous person. When she was 16, she went to go and live up in Scotland. Her mum had gone to Peru on her own in the 1960s. Now, if you think about a woman travelling on her own to Peru in the 1960s, just quite how adventurous that is. It's quite a remarkable thing, really. Um, and... My mum had also travelled to New Zealand in her 20s. And New Zealand would have been a very different place back then. Fast forward to when I was 16. I'd carried on loving Star Trek and Games Workshop and all those sort of slightly geeky things. Although I had an uncle that really inspired me, this love of astronomy and space as well as the Star Trek science fiction side. And I moved to Windsor Boys School, which is the local state comprehensive school in my hometown, Windsor. And in... The first year, we discovered that the rugby team was going on a tour to Australia, New Zealand and the Cook Islands the following summer. And one person had dropped out. And my mum, single mum, raised me uh, effectively on social income and social housing, mostly. Uh, had a second job working, or had a job working as a cleaner. And she said to me, look, if you can get into the rugby team, I will pay for your cost to go to New Zealand. So she worked really hard to pay for my my trip to New Zealand because she knew that I would just love it. Having been there herself, she was like, look, these opportunities don't come along very often uh, and they certainly don't come along at this sort of affordability given what you're going to do. So, yeah, that was the deal. I was rubbish at rugby, uh, but I managed to make it into the team as a prop. I was a terrible prop. I was a terrible rugby player. Uh, but it got me to Australia, New Zealand and the Cook Islands. And I think New Zealand in particular was a place that really struck me because of the Māori heritage there, uh, which, unlike most other indigenous cultures in uh, European colonised nations, has survived in a very strong way in the modern identity of New Zealand. Obviously, they've uh, had awful dispossession of land and various other uh, crimes against them over the last 150 years. Yet at the same time, they've managed to retain an important part of New Zealand identity, New Zealand culture, and New Zealand politics and law. And I found that fascinating, uh, a country like New Zealand that from the outside looked very Western in the way it was set up, the legislature, being able to move around, they speak English, a lot of the people are white. Uh, but at the same time, there's this uh, Polynesian element to their identity, which have actually has become stronger over the last 20 years, I'd say. And it really triggered in me this interest. And I think it was there that my love of travel was really triggered. And actually, it was going back to New Zealand in 2007 that really got me into the outdoors. I'd been a ski instructor. I'd been, I'd done one ski, ski season by this point. I, you know, I hated walking in the outdoors. I, that's not true. My mum used to take us out. We used to go walking around the Great Park in Windsor with our dog and stuff. So, I, you know, I probably developed a love of the outdoors, but I wasn't someone that loved going camping or loved going hiking up mountains. So, you know, I, whilst I didn't, 
uh, certainly didn't hate it. I had an appreciation of it. it. I wasn't one of these people who, you know, like Rob McFarlane, who'd spent all of his life up on the mountains. Uh, Rob McFarlane, the great na- uh, nature writer. Um, and yeah, I, I tried skiing in my first year of university, decided I wanted to do a ski season, did one in France. At the end of university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, bizarrely enough, I got a place to go to Sandhurst with what was then the Light Infantry as my sponsorship regiment. Uh, but there were three things I wanted to do. I wanted to be a cowboy in somewhere. I wanted to be a ski instructor and I wanted to go back and play rugby better in New Zealand. So I learned how to ride horses in Windsor by mucking out the Queen's stables in the Great Park in exchange for riding lessons. Um, and then went and stayed with some, uh, these guys who'd come and lived with us in England uh, whilst they were coaching rowing at the Windsor Boys School. So I went to go and stay with them in Tasmania, uh, worked on some farms, and then moved over to New Zealand, uh, played rugby. And whilst I was there, I trained as a ski instructor. That was also the first time I started to do big hikes in the outdoors, multi-day hikes like the route burn. Yeah, I, I have to sort of agree. I My sort of love sort of came in the Alps as well when, you know, I started, I, when I did a season, I, I was skiing and then when I... I actually found the love of walking up the mountains far more enjoyable than just sort of skiing and going on these big day hikes up the mountain, finding these sort of fresh snow. And I actually found the hike almost as enjoyable as the ski down. Sort of going somewhere where no one else is going or no one's ever gone. And that sort of love of the outdoors sort of came about quite late in my time as well. Do you think um, your time at Sandhurst also um, moulded you towards the sort of travel writing? Absolutely not. I didn't actually go to Sandhurst until 2014. So I decided to not join the regular army. I, uh, At the time, the Iraq war had just started. And I was like, I'm not sure if this is a moral war or a just war. I did philosophy at university. So I did uh, morality and justice of warfare as a as part of my studies I was like I don't think this was moral I don't think this is just and I don't think it's a war that's going <laughs> to have any good outcomes and I think it's safe to say that 17 years on it has done nothing but bad things that war uh, so I decided that I probably couldn't join a or an organization in which I had no choice in that uh, I did later join the army reserve as uh, which is a which is a different organization and I've done some operations, but only in the UK. So Operation Rescript, which was the response to COVID-19. Um, yeah, I, I think it's something that I uh, I haven't come to a final decision on how I feel about that yet. And I think it's, it's, it's important to always uh, reflect on what it is you're doing. And I think that organisation is founded in patriotism, duty, various other things. Um, I think sometimes the challenge is, is the things that the army's asked to do aren't necessarily for the good of the nation or anyone else. And I think Iraq showed that. But eventually I joined as an army reservist. Um, the organisation itself, separate from the thing that's asked to do, is a really good organisation to be a part of. Uh, Sanders teaches you, the first thing Sanders teaches you is tolerance of discomfort and tolerance of being tired. I mean, that's that's part of the conditioning that you go through, particularly in in starting phases you learn some very practical skills be uh, uh, of being in the outdoors obviously um you learn to just sort of like okay i'm wet that's all right i can 
deal with that. I can resolve that problem. You learn navigation, you learn problem management, you learn decision making. They give you um, systems to do that with, um, a whole system to assess problems, a bit like a management consultant, but um, for dismantling close combat warfare rather than um, uh, trying to fire people from businesses. <laughs> it's a, um, uh, it was a great thing to do. Uh, did it improve my love of the outdoors? Well, most certainly I... Uh, spent lots of time in the outdoors and i think you get the opportunity to do things that you never wise would other see you know seeing uh, doing a dawn attack in kenya on a training area doing a dawn attack in wales on a training area and you see these places that are extremely remote that very few people would ever go to and ever see at that time of day uh, i've seen many more sunrises as a product of being in the army reserve than i would have done in any other part of my life uh, and i cherish that and i met some great people uh, who've done some really interesting things as well through it. Uh, specifically, how it's triggered and assisted my career is when I went to Estonia in 2017. So I was on a training exercise as part of the British military deployment to Eastern Europe to deter Russian aggression after Russia had invaded Ukraine uh, in Crimea and Donbass. Uh, they hadn't openly invaded both of those. They they um, they did it with unmarked soldiers, but. Understandably, Eastern Europe got a bit scared. <laughs> uh, so being part of NATO, we were deployed there and understanding what was going on and seeing those stories of what was happening in Estonia with the mix of the Russians and the Estonians at the legacy of the Soviet Union, that directly contributed to Edgelands, which was the podcast project I did with The Telegraph. Oh, wow. And so that's when, so when the project you did with The Telegraph, was that you coming up with the idea or was that The Telegraph? coming up with the idea and asking you to go on it it's completely my idea from beginning to end so i had first written for the telegraph in 2013 i'd gone to everest with walking with the wounded which is a, a charity that tries to get uh, wounded servicemen back into employment physically or 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 non-visible injuries getting them back into um into work and like, a sense of purpose in their life I'd gone to Everest with them to film it as part of a PR campaign. And I then took my dad's ashes to India from there. My father was Indian. And I wrote that up for the Telegraph. So that was the first piece I wrote for the Telegraph. And from then on, I just stayed in touch. When I did Walking the Nile with Lev, I walked about, probably about 15% of Walking the Nile with Lev. I think we walked about, I can never quite remember i think was it was it 700 or a thousand kilometers was it 700 miles and a thousand kilometers anyway a long way uh, i wrote that up for the telegraph as well and then wrote a few bits and pieces again over the years after that and then i came up with this idea i was i was intrigued by you know the legacy of the soviet union and this russian diaspora living in estonia what that meant for russia's uh, estonia's identity and security how russia might choose to leverage that as they had done in ukraine to justify an invasion and annexation uh, and realised that this was something that was going all along the eastern border of Europe, uh, where, where, where the rest of Europe had met Russia, uh, and that the legacy of World War II had never really gone away in that region, and uh, the impacts of what had happened when the Soviet Union had uh, allied with Nazi Germany and jointly invaded Eastern Europe and Poland, and also the legacy of... Um, the ongoing the Soviet occupation for the years afterwards. So I wanted to go and uh, explore that more. 
and I went to the Telegraph and I said, oh, I think, I can't remember if I was going to film it or audio record it first. I think I had, I can't remember if I had the idea of the podcast, if that was generated in conversation with them. Um, I'd originally gone to try and get a column and then they'd had this guy called Drake, Greg Dickinson, who's one of their content editors, who's a brilliant guy. Uh, and Greg and I kind of talked about turning it into a podcast. And so we did. Uh, and I love doing this podcast. I, I'm astonished that not more people have done travel narrative podcasts because I think it's a great way to immerse the listener in the place that you're going to in a way that you just don't get with 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 writing to quite the same extent because you have the audio, you have everything else. So my friend Pip Stewart and I have now created a new podcast called The First Mile, which is a mix of that immersive travel narrative audio storytelling with uh, sort of behind the scenes and how to conversations with people who are the best at what they do in the travel industry. Uh, so yeah, you know, did, did Sanders help me with travel writing? Turns out it did. No, that that's, that's awesome. That's uh, an incredible trip. And so the, as, uh, as I was saying earlier, the idea with Pip is that you will travel from place to place and record from wherever you are. Well, the great thing about having your own podcast rather than doing it for a, for a commissioner or a publisher or broadcaster is you can do whatever you like. Uh, and I think both of us wanted to get away from the sort of interview format podcasts, which we both been a part of, but also use our experience. And both of us have done these quite long adventures. Pip's done, Pip cycled from Hong Kong back to London. That was her first big adventure. She was then the Red Bull Adventure Editor. She then cycled across the Amazon, various other bits and pieces. You know, I did... Uh, a bunch of walking the Nile with the Lev, a bunch of walking the Himalayas with the Lev. I did a bunch of my own separate things, walked around Albania in the footsteps of World War II missions. Uh, there was the Japanese stuff that I've done a few times. There was the, you know, uh, Edgelands, New Iron Curtain. So between us, we've both had some pretty interesting trips and used them to cover some interesting stories. And I think we just wanted to do it in different ways. And, yeah, so the podcast will be a bit of like dispatches, the way we did it with Edgelands. Uh, I'm sure we'll go off and do some pieces where Pip and I go off on a mini adventure at some point as well. She's got a a baby now as well, Willow. So we're going to have a whole bunch of interesting stuff with uh, her her doing adventures with Willow. So yeah, the first mile. Check it out, John. I will. I will. And for anyone listening, go and check it out too. Your adventures with Leveson, because that's probably how I first came across you, was when he was walking the miles. You've done the Himalayas and walking the mile with him. And you were the... I did. I did. I went on all of Lev's expeditions, but I never did all of them from beginning to end. Lev and I went to university together, and after he left the Paris, I'd already written for a few of the papers and working as a ski instructor and doing a bunch of stuff within the travel writing world. Lev is a remarkable talent at networking and learning from people and then uh, doing it better than them. He he got in touch because he was like, Ash, I'm trying to get into travel writing. I see you're really doing it. It'd be great to catch up for a coffee. I was working in Switzerland, running a ski chalet in Verbier, having been a ski instructor there. And he came out and worked with me for a while. We plotted and planned some travels. He'd already done a bunch of his own stuff. He'd already backpack from london to delhi via afghanistan in his year after uni uh, just before the british army went into helmand so afghanistan was relatively stable at that point and he uh had set up a company called secret compass with a, a fellow para 
uh, Parra being a member of the British Army's Parachute Regiment. And they were doing adventures, some really cool stuff. They were going to Afghanistan to the Wakan Corridor. And I tried to plot and create a way to make that into a TV programme, which didn't happen. And then they ended up doing a bunch of location management stuff for production companies. He spoke to a director, eventually Walking the Nile uh, was commissioned. Uh, and it was on, it was off. He was doing it with another guy. Then he was doing it on his own. And Lev actually asked me to do the whole of Walking the Nile with him. Uh, and I decided to go into Reserve Sandhurst, which was probably the worst career decision of my life. And uh, he ended up becoming a television superstar. And uh, I'm still just, you know, making podcasts, run for the Telegraph. <laughs> but no, it was, uh, it was great because when he went to do it, he uh, wanted people that he trusted to do elements with him. So he knew that I could film. I was I already ran my own uh, video production company by then, Digital Dandy, mostly doing marketing and uh, website videos. But he knew I knew how to film. I'd trained, I'd done, t- I'd done a bunch of TV stuff already as a shooting researcher. And he basically persuaded the production company that I needed to go out and film all the most remote sections because he, 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 he wouldn't trust the other cameramen to do it with him. And... Uh, well, not that he didn't trust them, but he just, you know, it was a case of those those guys had big pieces of kit. It would have been impractical for them to do some of the long distance pieces through the more remote sections. So I went with him for those sections uh, and that was brilliant. And I basically did the same thing on walking the Himalayas, walking the Americas, went out and bimbled around Georgia with him for crossing the Caucasus and then walked through part of Amman with him for Arabia. Uh, so yeah, being on all of them which is, I didn't go on walking with elephants, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, so, you know, Lev's, a, Lev's a, a great friend of mine. He came to my wedding. He was one of my uh, one of my better men. And uh, he and I have done some great adventures together over the years. In terms of the trips, like the Himalayas, the Nile, I suppose with these, and you being a filmmaker, you really only need a camera, a microphone, especially in these sort of remote areas. So the key thing you need to do, first of all, is do your research and learn how to film. Uh, and I think one of the big mistakes a lot of adventurers make is they think that their suffering is the most interesting thing to a viewer or landscape is the most interesting thing to a viewer, which landscape's nice. But, um, you know, we've heard plenty of stories about Antarctica or Everest. And I just think I get bored by hearing about somebody telling me about how hard their journey is because... You chose to do it. <laughs> what was really great about doing this, you know, I, and I'd worked in TV documentaries in the UK, which if you look at anything that's about the challenge a person goes through, it's about their own personal transformation and how they deal with those things, not just this is really hard, oh, my legs are, oh, I'm breathing hard. Uh, and if you've done that within stuff in the UK that is um, you know, British British current affairs or things that really matter to people in, in Britain, whether that's about you know poverty or or challenges they've gone through with uh, within their lives. Um, and you've worked on documentaries like that. You bring that idea and that storytelling to that, um, that format. They had a couple of great, uh, the, the main crew were excellent. Jamie Berry is a very experienced filmmaker and he'd done, Loads of series that were in challenging locations, but very much got at the heart of the human stories there. And Neil Bonner, who's gone on to do some incredible stuff, uh, including a story about a young woman uh, with breast cancer who founded the charity Copperfield Chris, uh, uh, 
her experiences of going through breast cancer as a young woman. Um, and he's made some amazing films. He actually did that after Walking the Nile. But to be able to learn from those two was uh, was key. And so what we did beforehand is they mapped out the journey and then identified what were the key points along the way, how what how would Lev develop as a character along the way. And if you watch the first episode of Walking the Nile, Lev still looks like an army officer. <laughs> you know, he hasn't become a much more... Um, uh, much more worldly, I guess, and uh, you know, just <laughs> knows more people of greater interest. Seeing him involved as a character throughout Walk of the Nile is the most is why we're fascinated with it. The cultures that he meets along the way are ones we've not really encountered before, and seeing how he interacts with them and how they react to him—that's what you really need to do. So you're not doing something like um, you're not doing a Bruce Parry type show where he immerses himself in a tribe for a period of time. Lev is passing through these places and he encounters them, but he's not, you know, living with them. He's not an anthropologist uh, in those places. So it's understanding how all of those different stories fit together and having uh, Boston on that first series was really important because Boston was able to express, you know, Boston was originally from the Congo, now lived in Uganda, and many of these places were. Uh, familiar to Boston, but others were not. So seeing Boston's interaction, uh, well, I think was key because it's very, we hear so often Africa referred to as a single place, but there's more ethnic and genetic diversity in Africa than the rest of the world put together. So seeing something like Boston traveling from Rwanda through to South Sudan, as he eventually did, was 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 a very important uh, aspect of that film as well. And then you, you do your training in filmmaking in order to understand how to capture those stories. Uh, but Doing all that planning beforehand is the vital part of it, I think. What do you think is the sort of key to capturing like the perfect storytelling in those sort of adventures? So in all observational documentary, which effectively is what Walking the Nile is, you sit down and <laughs> very similar to the army, you, you, you sit down and you assess the entire problem, you assess the entire journey. In the army, you call it, you know, in management consulting, you call it a problem. In the army, you call it a mission. In filmmaking, you call it the story. What's the journey? What are all the different phases? Uh, what are the key beats of the story? So in stories, only you call it the key beats. Where are the key moments that are going to happen? So in a military operation, it's what are the key phases of the operation? Where are the things, places we need to be and when? And so then in storytelling, you go... Who are the people that we're going to encounter there? What are they likely to say? What are the themes? So if you think about walking the Nile, there's like three or four different themes there. There's the journey of Lev walking along, going from Rwanda to Egypt. There is the uh, personal development of Lev along that place. There are the socio-political, economic and military stories that are going along simultaneously underneath. The, uh, the At that time, it was the legacy of the Arab Spring in Egypt. It is environmental destruction and poaching in Uganda. It is um, the police state in Sudan. It is the legacy of uh, the genocide in Rwanda. So those are all different themes and topics and stories that you have along the way. Um, and then it's who are the people that are going to tell us those stories? How's Liv going to interact with them? So you, you basically plan all of these things out. And you go, right, today we, we used to get information through from the team back in the back office. Like over the next week, these are the places you guys are going because, you know, Lev had planned the route for years in advance. Here are the things that we found along there that might be interesting for you to encounter. Uh, so every day 
me as I as a cameraman walking with Levin thinking, right, what's coming up today? What's happening in three days' time? In three in a week's time, Levin's going to be crossing into South Sudan. So I need to start getting him talking about now how he's feeling and looking forward to that. So your key thing is always trying to get stuff out of the contributor, in that case, Lev, and then thinking about how that interacts and intersects with the environment around him. And then, you know, filming is no point in me telling you about wides close-ups mediums that's something you can look up on youtube yeah i suppose it's also like the sort of three-act narrative of like build up the conflict the resolution did you yeah i mean yeah i mean that that's that's the fundamentals of storytelling then you just you're basically painting by numbers out on top of it and then you also remember that as soon as you go out into the environment all of that goes to uh, goes to shit because you're inter- interacting with the real world but unless you've done that plan in the first place um you are not prepared for what you encounter. Who was it? Uh, the Eisenhower said plans are useless, but planning is essential or plans are useless, but planning is vital. You know, no plans survives first contact with the enemy or that kind of stuff. So, you know, you have to do all of that planning so that when you encounter something, you're like, okay, how does that intersect with what I'm trying to do? You know, if you do a platoon attack and you suddenly discover a machine gun, Yes, you're like, right, I cannot do a front assault on that, but I know what the trade is like. What are the other assets I have around me that I can bring in onto this problem and deal with it? That's a military thing. When you're filming, you know, there's some tragic things that happened in um, in Walk of the Nile, and then it's a case, how do you how do you deal with that from a storytelling perspective? Yeah, I, I I sort of agree with that in terms of I think it's Mike Tyson who said everyone has a plan until they get smacked in the face. And yeah, with Adventure, exactly. we did a trip along um, the Silk Road, going from Switzerland to Afghanistan and back again. And in terms of storytelling, it was, as you say, we sort of had a plan of how to get through it and through these different cultures. But um, sort of on a day-to-day basis of filming, it was very difficult to sort of construct the story behind it and tell a story that that we thought was of interest. Because on a sort of day-to-day basis. You're so, as you say, most of the time, a lot of it's very mundane. It's probably with you, it was walking 20 miles a day and you're going through a desert not seeing anyone. It's just you and Leveson. And the same with us. It would be driving for... for- and the guide. They've always had uh, a local guide with him. Yeah. So there's always a story of the local guide and their experiences and feelings of things. So you always had that... You know, when I fast forward to when I was doing the new Iron Curtain, the uh, the challenge that I think you always face if you're trying to be the producer, director, and you're the you're the main you're the you're the expedition lead is you're dealing so much with the admin and the transport and what you're doing that you do not have enough distance to uh, document it properly, which is why. You know, the documentary team on Walking the Nile, the Americans of Himalayas, came in and out. For me, when I was doing the New Iron Curtain, the challenge I faced was I was trying to record the podcast, I was trying to film, uh, I was trying to do social media, I was also trying to create new contacts like two months down the line and set up those stories there. I was also mitigating the planning for what was going on around me where I was. And that's, that's tough. You know, there's a reason why production teams and television are as big as they are. And it's also the reason why professional filmmakers do what they do. You know, I think everybody thinks that they can be a filmmaker now that they have a camera on their phone and they can do Instagram. But the difference between doing a bit of Instagram with your phone and making a proper film is quite vast. And the difference between being an expedition leader or someone with, um, you know, 
and I don't mean it in, in a disparaging way at all, like that sort of self-centered drive or focus that a guy like uh, a guy like Lev or Nims Dye or uh, Al Humphreys have in order to, or Leon McCarran or Pip Stewart um, have in order to do the things they want to do, to then uh, come away from that and have the ability to oversee it is important. Uh, I think one thing that's really important at the moment is actually to get much more diversity in storytelling. I think the idea of uh, people going off and doing tough adventures, it's kind of just like, I'm just a bit bored of it, really. I think what's been really good over the last year or two is to have some really, uh, well, back a bit further than that, it's just not been uh, raised well enough as stories, is diversity in storytelling and storytellers, uh, both ethnic diversity and gender diversity. One of the best books I've read in the last few years is Manisha Raujet, who's around India and 80 trains. So uh, Manisha is born and raised here in the UK. Her parents are from India. And she wrote a book about traveling around India on trains. It was the first book, first proper travel book I'd read by a British Asian, a proper travel writer writing about it, rather than a TV presenter writing about a travel series they've done in India. You know, and... I remember when I went traveling around India in 2001 to learn a bit about my heritage, trying to find books that connected with me, resonated with me. There were none. You know, there were books by um, white male authors. Uh, And there was nothing by British Indians about traveling around India. Over the years afterwards, as I started to do more research about India, the best books I found were books by Indians about India rather than books by white English people about India. And I think when we think about the storytelling that we want to hear more of at the moment, the great thing about uh, increasing diversity, whether that's ethnic or or gender, is you get different insights. You get different types of storytelling. You hear people travelling to those places with empathy and insight and understanding rather than observational entertainment. And I think that is a very important element of storytelling. So, Ash, this is the part of the show where we ask the same five questions to every guest that comes on the show, with the first one being, what's the one thing that you miss or crave from home when you're out or doing your sort of adventures? Um, a, a pint of beer is something that I used to miss a lot because a few years ago, you just couldn't get pints of beer anywhere other than England. I think uh, craft beer has become a thing across the world. So uh, it's both nice and a bit of a shame that when you go to anywhere in the world now, they'll tell you that they have an amazing craft brewery scene. I think you've just got a, you've just got pubs. Um, <laughs> that used to be something I miss an awful lot. I think cup of tea is a bit of a cliche, so I probably wouldn't really say that. Uh, you know, I I <laughs> quite miss going to the gym. You know, I'm not really a gym bunny. But I think having that time that you just go and work out and have that time to yourself, I find it quite meditative. I do a lot of, uh, have to do a lot of physio stuff after my years of destroying myself playing rugby, largely. That I find it quite a meditative experience. And you just don't do that when you're in the road doing expeditions or, or even just travel writing. You don't tend to make the time for it. Uh, so oddly enough, I think that might be the one thing that I miss the most whilst travelling. Yeah, I've certainly missed um, the gym in the sort of lockdown era. I, I, yeah, I used to sort of go when I'm back in the UK, sort of 
every day or every other day at least and suddenly now I'm resorting to the park and sort of running around and doing chin-ups on trees and on bars wherever I can see them mm-hmm. so yeah I, I have to say it's definitely one thing I certainly miss yeah there's not that many other things that we use to really uh ground ourselves to the now in our physical experience so I think that's quite a good one yeah um did you have a sort of favorite adventure book? I think that what were the books that really triggered me on adventures? You know, Lord of the Rings is an amazing book. I think it has lots of flaws, particularly the lack of female characters. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but the concept of adventure and the stories that both Bilbo and Frodo go through are archetypes of Joseph Campbell's A Hero's Journey. And they're just brilliant books that fill you with wonder about what is out there. Uh, Where the Wild Things Are is another uh, great one. But in terms of, you know, uh, books that I think are great to read, I think Manisha's book around India in 80 Trains is quite a uh, a good one for people that want to read something quite different it isn't about physical arduous, but is about a journey and a person's journey through it. Um, also, because it adds uh, a whole new insight that you just don't often get in most travel books. Um, yeah, where the wild things are, I think that's probably like a really good entry level for for adventure books. Oh, nice. And what about an inspirational figure growing up? inspirational figures for me growing up were were captain jean-luc picard and captain benjamin sisko the uh, captain of the uss enterprise d and the commander of duke space nine and later captain of the uss defiant so i think what was really interesting about them is uh picard had like a real humanity empathy and diplomacy and understanding of other cultures and i think obviously they're you know they're archetypes from a science fiction show if you think about the amount of time that you spend with TV characters, if you're really into a program, there's as much of an inspiration as anybody from the real world. And I think the qualities and characteristics of those people can really influence you. And so the the characteristics characteristics that I learned from them around empathy um, and tolerance, I think are really important when you're out traveling the world rather than just seeing other cultures as weird. You understand they just come from a different paradigm. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And what is your favourite quote or motivational quote? Uh, I quite like "Know Thyself." I think that's Socrates. Socrates, Plato. I think that's where it comes from. Socrates. Yeah, I think it's Socratic. Yeah. So I think it's really difficult to know yourself. You know, what motivates you, what inspires you, what troubles you, what brings out the best in you, what brings out the worst in you. It's quite hard to know that sort of um, a priori. And I think you kind of, I think one of the good things about travel and one of the good things about challenging yourself is you slowly start to develop an awareness and insight into those things. Okay. And a lot of people listening are always keen to go on these sort of grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend them to get started? Well, John, I'll uh, I'll cheat a bit here. I think uh, when you're trying to find 
a reason to go on uh, adventures or into the outdoors or do something, uh, well, always always start small. Don't overdo it too big. But I think the key thing to get you outside is something that draws you there. So I think uh, there are three rules I like to tell people when they're going travelling so that you don't just spend all of your time looking at your phone or thinking about bars and food. So the first one is to go for your hobbies. So when I went to Australia and New Zealand in 2006-07, I went to ride horses, I went to play rugby, and I went to uh, ski. Now, I was terrible at all of those things, but it went. I went there, it took me into those places, and I had an amazing time and became much more part of the local communities than if I hadn't gone to do those things and became good enough at them to not always fall off racehorses. Um, and sometimes I made a few tackles in rugby. Uh, and then the second one is to go for uh, your inspirations or the stories or people that interest you. So in 2015, I went traveling around eastern Albania out towards Macedonia to follow in the footsteps of a guy called Brigadier Edmund Trotsky Davies. He was a SOE British Special Forces guy who was there during the war and got uh, eventually got captured uh, by the Germans and their Albanian collaborators so it's following that story which took me on an amazing adventure and then the other one is to hunt for the unexpected so whenever you go places think what is different what is not just cliched here so in uganda in 2014 when i was with lev one of the things that i noticed was a massive proportion of people wearing arsenal shirts <laughs> uh bear in mind arsenal have not been a good team for quite a long time although they did win the fa cup last year my arsenal friend tells me now i don't really care for football a huge amount. Um, I like watching entertaining football, but I don't care. I don't really follow any of the teams. But I noticed this was like a disproportionate amount of people in Arsenal shirts. I thought, that's unusual. Uh, and that gave me a reason to communicate with people. And I think it's really easy to go to places and see them as orient. It's seen through this Orientalist lens and see them as foreign and interesting. Let's go and get in touch with the culture of Uganda. Uh, uh, what's authentic here? You know, they're people who have lives and who um, have the similar dreams, aspirations and interests as you and I. Sometimes identical interests when it comes to football. Uh, and I discovered they're extraordinarily passionate about football. And the reason they love Arsenal is because when the Premier League became an international sporting fixture and transmitted to uh, Uganda, uh, Arsenal were one of the leading teams in the Premier League. And they also had a lot of black players in their team at that time. Saul Campbell, Canu, Vieira, Thierry Henry, I think was finishing off his career there. So that is why they love Arsenal. And that legacy is carried on through in a place like Uganda. Uh, so that just gave me something to talk to them about and revealed something that not many people would have said after coming back from Uganda. So hunt for the unexpected, follow your hobbies and follow your heroes and those that interest you. Oh, amazing. Yeah, football is definitely one of these things no matter where you go in the world, just kicking a sort of ball around or talking about the Premier League, which, as you say, is a worldwide brand. It's just so easy and people love to talk about it and get so passionate well, think, about it too. Well, I think the really important thing is not just talk about the Premier League. Dig into it about what, what's behind this. You know, oh, you guys love Arsenal. Cool. But what was amazing was, why do you love Arsenal? Why Arsenal? Um, and... Their knowledge was incredible. They knew which linesmen had <laughs> had been more or less prejudiced towards Arsenal in the previous seasons. At that level of detail, if you go into that kind of stuff, you're really getting somewhere rather than 
sticking with the normal boring not boring but the normal thing which is oh well you love um i don't know don't know if there's anyone good at arsenal anymore you know so if you use those entry points to dig deeper then you really start to you know look under those rocks of interest yeah because i I, well i mean i could talk about football for hours and hours but yeah it is that sort of fascination in africa which football's just sort of exploded and the world cup in 2010 in south africa which was the first African country to host the World Cup, also exploded the sport as well. With Ghana and Senegal, I think, in 20, 2002 also going far. I'll, 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 I'll trust you on that, John. <laughs> I, I have no idea about football. Uh, and Ash, how um, people listening, how can, how can we follow your journeys and adventures in the future? I put stuff up on my website intermittently, www.ashbardwaj.com. That's B-H-A-R-D-W-A-J. But the easiest one is probably on Twitter and Instagram. And they're both at Ash Bardwaj, A-S-H-B-H-A-R-D-W-A-J. But Pip and I are about to launch The First Mile, which is our new podcast. So what I would love everybody to do is search for The First Mile on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, like, uh, and rate it, and you know, give us five stars. So, no, if you if you jump on that and follow that, that'd probably be the best way to find out what Pip and I are up to right now. Um, and yeah, that that's where I'd love them to go. The first mile. Amazing, Ash. Thank you so much for coming on today. Cheers, John. And guys, go check out his Instagram, Twitter, and website. Thanks, mate. Speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Take it easy. Join us next time on the Modern Adventurer podcast. Brutally cold, about minus 15 to minus 18, the wind chill. Um, And I knew that I wouldn't make it back to the village before I ran out of food. So I faced a really tricky decision, um, but ended up having to activate the SOS on my Garmin, on my sort of GPS device, and um, yeah, got rescued by a helicopter, which is all quite dramatic and I really don't like being the one that causes a causes a scene and makes a fuss. Thank you for listening. You can watch the videos on YouTube now and please tell your friends about the podcast, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes as it makes a huge difference to the show. Thank you and have a great day. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.